You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome to The Investor Way with me, Sam Ball. I'm joined today by our special guest, Bill Sinecki. Firstly, thank you very much for coming on the show. And could you just talk to everyone a bit about how you became interested in investing and your investing career to date? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me on the show, Sam. So I would say my parents weren't really the investment type. You know, outside of my dad's 401k, they owned no stock, right? Like when I was in high school, my mom waited to take. So I, I wasn't brought up around investing much. And I would have to say the first time I really got interested in investments was luck, right? It was eighth grade and my teacher showed us the, the power of compound interest with a retirement calculator. And, you know, he said, Einstein said, compounding interest is the eighth wonder of the world. And it just blew my mind away. Like if you started two years earlier, when you retire at 65, how much of a difference that makes? Um, because you know, we as humans, we think very linearly, you know, we think in terms of 12 plus 12 plus 12 plus 12 plus 12, which is 60. And compound interest does not think like that. It thinks like 12 times 12 times 12 times 12 times 12, which is 248,000, right? So realizing that it made me more frugal and it opened up my eyes. So when I did start making money and I did start putting myself out in the workforce, I would save and I would invest because the returns just blew my mind away. When you say in the workforce, could you talk about what you've done throughout your career so far? And also, were you, were you actually saving and investing throughout that whole period then? Yeah. So this is my advice to anyone that's, that's graduating college. You want to work hard on your job at first, and you want to get that powder. And uh, while you're growing your powder, you, know, you put it in index funds, and then you watch these other stocks, and you say, Mentally, well, what if I bought here? You know, th- that's how much money I would make. You know, you kind of, you kind of walk through and you go through scenarios. That's what I did um, when I was focusing on my job, and I just socked money away. And then when a trade came up, that's when I would go all in with leverage, and it worked out a lot. But one thing that you need to remember about compounding interest is you need to have money that's still there left to compound because if you blow it all then compound interest is pointless because there's nothing to compound. But, you know, if, if you're graduating college, first thing you want to do is start growing your, your size. You know, you want to start getting that money to compound. And it's, it's not really popular, but I would recommend once you find something, and this is coming from a guy that just blew up his account, but once you find a trade and the stars align, then I would recommend using leverage at a young age because it can make such a profound impact. And you see it. Like my mentor is Chris Camillo. The guy started with 20K. He's at 45 million right now. And it's, it's started just by working, saving his money and bit by bit learning, failing, learning, failing, fixing and uh, kind of perfecting his craft. And it got him to 43 million. Um, but you first, you first got to generate money in order to compound it. And that is by focusing on your job. And if you're just focusing on investments when you're 21, yeah, maybe you'll get lucky, 
But at the end of the day, you need you need income coming in, reliable income, because the market's not going to be as kind as it was in 2020 and 2021 forever. Were you trading from the off then? Because you, you are more of a trader than an investor. So what got you into that rather than going down the just, I don't know, say putting it in an S&P 500 tracker? Ah, man. So I've, I've gone back and forth, right? I my first investment I ever bought was like Qualcomm at the peak. And I remember thinking if I would have just put this in SMP, I would be up so much more because I bought Qualcomm. I think it was in 2012, 2013. I think I bought it at 76 and it ended up going down like four years later to 50. And I was like, why didn't I just put it in an SMP? But then, you know, I, I, I started taking risks because I, you know, I, I am a social ARB investor. You know, I like to see what's going on. Culturally, if there's a sudden shift in behavior, you know, I want to be at the forefront of that trade because that usually happens before Wall Street gets a hold of it. And if you want to have a 10-bagger, you cannot be trading stocks that are recommended on Twitter by people that have a million followers. So I started, you know, the, the biggest, I'd say the biggest trade I had before um, Peloton was, was Match. And that was just because in 2015, 2014, I saw you know, you don't have to go to the bar to meet an opposite sex. You can just go from your phone. Like it made it scalable. Um, and I thought this is huge. And, you know, people that work in Wall Street, they're typically married. So they're not using that app, right? Or they're older. Maybe they, they don't know about that app yet. Um, so, you know, I traded that and I doubled my account. It wasn't a large account, but I doubled my account. And I said, holy crap, this is this is what you get paid for when they say no risk, no reward. This is what you get paid for when you take a risk on that single stock. And what's tough is, you know, not going all in when you find the opportunity. What's tough is not buying anything when there's nothing, nothing appealing to buy, right? That's, that's the tough part. Um, so after that match incident, what I would do is, okay, I made my money. Let's put it back in index funds like Betterment, right? Because, you know, you 2x your money, you're, you're not going to do that all the time. And then I would wait for another stock to come around. And this happened too, because I saw so many like Netflix, Amazon, you know, I always said, this is too expensive. You know, I, I'm not going to buy this and it just keeps going up. It keeps going up. So I kind of learned by putting my money in index funds and watching these other stocks, you know, you can take a risk if the stars align and you can get paid very handsomely. And, you know, of course the opposite can happen. Could you talk us through the history of your account? And some of your bigger trades then because you you said you've you've blown up more than once um and could you also talk about how how much leverage you tend to use i've certainly never used it and i don't i don't think uh either me or john the, the usual host have actually ever discussed it on the show yeah so i mean are you familiar with naval the twitter account yeah yeah, yeah i, I follow it but that that's about the extent of my knowledge yeah he always quotes um the Greek philosopher um, Archimedes and says, you know, he said, if, if you give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum to place it, I can move the world. And that's what leverage is. I mean, it makes your wins so much bigger and your losses so much bigger. And, you know, you have to be careful with it, but there are times when a stock presents itself and you can make a lot of money. You know, Drunken Miller talks about it. Warren Buffer did it. Carl Icahn, they've always had a trade somewhere in their trading history where they went all in because it was an asymmetric bet. So that's the key. When you, when you use leverage, it has to be asymmetric bet. And, and there's, a, there's a research 
article from, from Yale in 2008, and they did a study on people that use leverage. And if you use leverage at you know, any point in time for the past 100 years, you know, when you start investing at 18, you use a two to one. So for every $1 you own, you're going to borrow $2. And through the study, they found out on average over the 100 years, you know, if starting at any other point in time, on average, that person would retire with 90% more in their trading account than they would if they didn't use leverage. Now, the study also said, said you must consider that you know, these people are going to blow up their accounts. And if for, in order for this you know, account to achieve the 90% more than they would not using leverage, as soon as they blow up their account, they would have to go back and start using leverage again like nothing ever happened. And um, you know, that kind of blew my mind away reading that. And you know, you read it and it might be true, but at the end of the day, is your mind ready for that? You know, and mine's not. So, um, you know, I got, I have cash. I'm not levered right now. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to get my groove back because if you're not in a state of calm, you should not be trading. You should be investing. Um, because trading, when you're trading, you want to use your frontal lobe. And if you're not in a state of calm, you're going to be using your excuse me, your amygdala. And when you're using your amygdala, that's based off just fear and greed. And that's what happens when you use your amygdala. That's the saying, you know, buy high, sell low. That's, that's what happens. So um, I'm kind of taking baby steps now, trying to get small wins and then let those compound. Because I know there's no huge opportunity right now that I'm salivating over, but I know there will be. And um, when it happens, I will do the exact same thing I did that, you know, turned 20K into 1.3 million. You know, I just got to be smarter about it this time. So could you talk a bit more about that 20K into 1.3 million and how you actually did that? And for anyone who's listening and doesn't know what leverage is, by the way, it's probably worth explaining that. But it's basically where you're just borrowing money to increase the amount you can invest. And correct me if I'm wrong, because you'll know them more than me. But as an example... Yeah. If you had if you had 10k and you wanted to invest 20, you'd you'd borrow the other 10, and then what would happen is you'd be able to invest the 20k. Any of the gains are yours, but if that investment drops by 50%, so that that 10k you've borrowed essentially you'd yeah. get liquidated, and they would take your 10k off you, so you're left with zero. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and and that that's what happened to me unfortunately on this last trade. And, you know, there was a lot of flashing indicators that I didn't follow. You know, I should have. Um, I let bias get the best of me. Um, but, you know, to take it a few steps back, you know, how I turned the 20K into 1.3 million is, you know, first by playing with options in 2017, 2018, you know, and just paying attention to my surroundings. You know, at my work, we have like so many different logins and all these systems aren't connected. And it really irked me. And then I found out about a, a company called MuleSoft um, that, you know, it was APIs that connected different systems. Um, so I bought a few call options on that and, you know, I got lucky and Salesforce bought them out. Actually, I don't think I got lucky because they'd be worth 10x. They were, um, you know, when they were bought out at, if they would have, if they would have stayed public. But, you know, I, I, I got lucky there. And then again, with Match, I got lucky. And then moving forward, another stock. And like I said, this is me just paying attention to my surroundings. Another stock that I saw, um, and, and mind you, be, between these trades, I'm not trading. 
right? Because I'm, I'm not going to waste not my capital or my mental capital, right? If there's no trade there, then throw it in index funds and wait till you see something that arises. Um, the next stock that I found was, you know, I, I was going to parties and I saw so many girls drinking these white claws. I was like, what the hell is this? Do you guys have white claws in the UK? Is it a seltzer? Yeah, yeah, it's a seltzer. So, you know, these girls are drinking it. Like every party you see the white claw. And then me and my buddy in 2018, we went on a skiing trip. This was in January of, yeah, January of 2018. And my buddy was driving and his buddy was in the back with a bunch of white claws. And like, (laughs) I mean, I mean, we're young and dumb. The guy chugs like six of them. He's like, holy crap, this is the best thing I've ever tasted. Right. And so that was right in my awareness. It's something I observed. And unfortunately, White Claw wasn't a public company, but then Truly, which is made by Sam Adams was. So I went in on that. um, And I think I made 60% on that investment. And then when I got done, I threw it into um, my index funds again. I usually keep it in betterment, you know, so I can... I'm not trading just to trade because that's the last thing you want to do is trade just to trade. But, you know, I, I found out what can happen if you're patient and you let the stars align and, you know, something comes in your purview. Um, that seems like a good buy that's not on Wall Street's radar. And, and that's kind of something that I've always used um, as in my trading is stuff that's not on Wall Street's trade, radar or retail traders radar. And that one um, definitely was Peloton. So, you know, the, the pandemic hit and stocks tanked. And, you know, what's, what's, what's good about the market is sometimes it just doesn't care. It's agnostic. It'll bring all the stocks down, right? But then you look and you're like, wait, okay, so every gym in the world is essentially closed right now. Only workout people can do is in their home because, you know, people weren't like even going outside at some point, how is Peloton at an all time low? Right. So I saw that. And what gave me a lot more confidence is everyone on Twitter and Reddit. I was doing, you know, I do a DD, I'm writing a 10 page DD. Everyone was tearing it apart and, you know, just going against what's popular I know, like it's just like in, in in gambling, right? If you're on DraftKings, if one bunch of people pick one team, well, if the other team wins, the payout's going to be huge. And so I looked at this as an asymmetric bet. Um, so I threw 20k into call options expiring in June 2020, and from there I grew it to around 100 grand. You know, I cashed out of those options. Should have hindsight, I should have held them longer, but I cashed out of those options. And I moved them straight to Peloton shares. And then that grew my account around to 300,000. And, you know, I really wanted to get into the Rocket IPO. And I wanted to use that 300,000 to put it into Rocket. But I noticed way too many people were bullish on the stock, right? I remember when it IPO'd, it shot up to 26. And everyone was like, this is a great stock. And I was like, okay, I don't want it, right? Because the more people who own a stock, the riskier that stock is, right? When everyone has a full position size of a certain company, then who else is left to buy? Um, so I avoided that, right? And then I started, you know, just doing social arb trades and, and just paying attention to my surroundings. And one, and actually, dumb money community that I'm part of picked this one up was VSTO. There was a huge ammo shortage, and I was going around to these 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 ammo shops, these gun shops, these gun stores, and asking about ammo, and they're just saying, man. 
we're, we, we can't, we can't get it fast enough and they're price gouging us too. So like they were selling straight off the shelves and they're also hiking the price 50%, right? No one could find ammo. And I joined the Reddit group, just called ammo and everyone was complaining about it. So I put a bunch of money in VSTO and I sold that too early too. I think that went from like $4 to today it's trading to like 36. But that was another one that really wasn't on Wall Street's radar. But if you just paying attention to your surroundings, you get in earlier. Um, and, and that's the key to finding a 10-bagger is you want to find it before others do. And, and the way to do that is not waiting for an analyst to tell you to buy, but paying attention to your surroundings and, and, and finding it yourself. So I made a good amount of money on VSTO. And you know, when the GameStop squeeze happened, you know, everyone started going crazy for these short squeezes and people started hating Rocket. So, you know, that was time where I started a position because like I said, everyone loves a stock, probably shouldn't be getting in. So I started a position there and then everyone started looking for other short squeezes and you saw AMC, BlackBerry, all these other stocks started squeezing. And I saw Rocket had a 25% short interest and I also had like a price to earnings of like three at the time, right? So it's like, not only did it have high short interest, but it was actually a legitimate company where you could sell this trade idea on Reddit, be like, dude, you know, you got AMC, you got AMC that's at an all-time high after all these dilutions they've already done and movie theaters are essentially dead. This is a legitimate company that went from the 10th largest lender in the world in five years to being the largest lender in the world that's growing and just stealing market share from these legacy banks. And what's funny about this, man, is the day before that squeeze, I had around $300,000 in calls. And the day before that squeeze, Sam, I sold half those calls. Um, so I only went into it with 150,000. Um, and I had a limit order too on that trade. So I think when around Rocket hit $30 a share, that's when I sold all my calls and it ended up going, Rocket ended up going up another 50%. So I did the math and it was like, if I wouldn't have sold those you know, those $150,000 worth of call options the day before and would have held on, it would have been like a, that day would have been like a $7 million day, but it was a 660K day. And I was, uh, I was very, yeah, I was, yeah, it wasn't a bad day, right? Like I was, I was thrilled and I, it, that was just a testament, right? That was just a testament. If you wait and you're patient, you can have big payouts like that. And before, like with Match and, and MuleSoft, and Sam Adams, I was just putting a little bit in, but I knew like, you know, when the stars align and Naval always says, that's when you need to go in with leverage and take those risks and the payouts will be enormous. Now, the only problem is after that payout, I had a very swollen head and you do not want to be a trader with a swollen head. Okay, so you've taken us all the way up. Presumably at this point, this is when you're at the peak of about 1.3 million. There's a couple of things before we go down the roller coaster, um, you said that were quite interesting. So you talked about your 10 page DDs. Is that due diligence? And what's yes, what's actually in that? Because obviously it sounds like a lot of your initial searching out of companies, it's it's more, well, it, you're looking for companies that you see in your everyday life and you can actually see the use case for. So say you find one of them or you think you found one, what else are you then looking at? Dude, everything. Every freaking thing. If you're going to put $300,000 in weekly call options, 
you're probably insane. But you're very, very insane if you're putting $300,000 into call options and you did not study every single detail about that company, right? So like, and that's the, to have conviction like I had, you have to know every single detail. Um, so like, for example, people were saying rockets manipulated, rocket stops manip manipulated, and they weren't given any reasoning. So like I read, um, what is it? operator, stock operator, um, Jesse Livermore, based off Jesse Livermore, and they go over manipulation. And in part of the book, I think they show graphs of what it looks like when Toots institutions are loading up and selling, you know, there was like, and Rockets, Rockets chart matched that exactly. You could tell, you know, and I started, I started finding people on LinkedIn at Rocket, asking them how the business is going, right? Like, so I, you know, I'm, I'm doing I'm looking at everything. I'm going on um, Reddit, reading everything I can, um, re reading every DD. But what I found too on doing DDs and you're on Reddit, the gold is not in the DD. It's in the comment section where you're going to find someone telling you some huge detail that you know you might have missed or that no one's seen. You know, I'm watching every single YouTube video that has that any person any financial influencer or some guy from his mom's basement, anyone talking about Rocket, I'm watching that and I go into those videos, like you're gonna, you're gonna watch a lot more videos if your goal is just to know one, learn one new thing about the company that you did not know, right? So you can watch an hour long video and you hear just one little piece of detail that you didn't know, right? And then you say to yourself, it's worth it. I'm gonna go watch another hour video and see if I can get one little detail. I was doing that and um, man, I wrote that DD so long ago, but it was a very long and detailed DD. And um, the only reason, like I said, the only reason I could put that much capital into one play is because I studied that stock religiously. Could you talk about the use of Reddit as an analysis tool? Because I think that's quite interesting. We've not had anyone, I don't think, mention Reddit before. So could you talk Reddit about what that's useful for? Yeah, Reddit is Reddit is far more superior in my opinion to Twitter. Because in Twitter, okay, so the brain, the brain just wants to learn something by putting the smallest amount of effort possible, right? And that's why you see like people that are active in politics, they just blindly agree with their party because it's it's too much brain power to actually learn the policies and see, you know, how people can disagree. And that's the same with when it comes to DD, people just want these short little snippets. But what's cool about Reddit is you get these long DDs that are like 20 pages long, right? And people are going to far more detail and people are a lot more open too, because it's anonymous, unlike Twitter. I mean, yeah, there's obviously accounts on Twitter that are anonymous, but you know, there's also, you know, it's not a hundred percent anonymous like it is on Reddit. Um, so, you know, people are a lot more open about their trades and about their mistakes and about their wins. Like, hell, Sam, I had no idea people could turn five grand into $200,000, right? Like going on Reddit and seeing all those posts, you realize, wow, this is possible, right? And that kind of gets your wheel spinning about the opportunities that the market can bring. And I think, I think Reddit is a great tool. And you see, like, did has Jim Cramer ever talked about Finchwit? You know, like if you look on all the news outlets, everyone's talking about Reddit. And there's, there's a reason because, you know, there's some very smart people on there. There are some, 
I mean, you're going to, there's a wider range than Twitter. On Twitter, you're going to find pretty consistent stuff. On Reddit, you're going to find really awful DDs, but you're going to find DDs. Um, and this is what Chris Camillo told me. He said, you're going to find DDs on Reddit that, you know, people at, at large firms couldn't even come close to writing because they have so much detail. And I think the reason is too, is because people at these firms, they can't trade the stock, right? But, you know, people on Reddit, they can, they're not, you know, they're not bankers. Um, so they have more of a vested interest and they, they do a better DD than the people that are actually paid to do DD. And, and Naval talks about that in his book. And he, he says, it's people that do things just for the sake of doing it, you know, because it's not their job and they actually enjoy doing it. Um, they do better than people that are paid to actually do it. And, and I think Reddit's DDs that you can find on there is a testament to that. Okay, so with back to the story, we're now at $1.3 million and how you've gotten there. Would you be okay talking about what happened after that and, that, and take us to the present day? Yeah, man. Um, let's open up that wound again. Sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, you get bucked off the horse, you got to get back on. You, you listen to all the traders from Market Wizards, they all blew up their accounts. Your buddy that you told me before the show that. Um, blew up his account, then later turned it into a million. That's a that's a great story. Um, so it's it's good to uncover that and learn from your mistakes. Um, but back to the the 1.3 million. So when I had that, I cashed out completely. Like I I was out, and I said, all right, you need to take a break because I've blown up my accounts before. And then when Peloton fell below 100, I said, holy crap, you know this is an opportunity. I can get back in, and you know. I could double my money. And what I was falling victim to was anchor bias, where you know I saw that $100 price point. I saw what happened last time it hit 100. It just surged to 170. And my anchor bias was telling me that would happen again. And In consolation, I also bought around that point as well. <laughs> yeah. And that's another point right there. A lot of people bought in. And that that's a testament right there. When, when you're following other people's trades and you know everyone's buying that stock, then who left is who is left to buy that stock. And I should have known that. Um, and like I told you about Rocket, you know, if you're going to put so much money into a single stock, you need to do some very detailed DD. And I swear, I probably, probably had about a thousand hours of DD on Peloton. Hell, I, I actually got Peloton delivery people's numbers. And I was calling them, asking how deliveries were going. You know, sorry, SEC, if that's not allowed. But I, you know, I was calling, trying to get updates, and you know, I, I had all the information in front of me. And here's the thing: when you do that much DD, you're gonna find, you know, let's say, 20 data points of why you should sell. But you're also gonna find 20 data points on why you should hold or why you should buy. And you know, my bias was gravitating toward the biases on why I should hold and why I should. Why I should stay. And then, you know, I was listening to platitudes like in the Jesse Livermore book, people who are right can barely sit tight, you know, some saying like that. And, you know, I was just picking and choosing conventional wisdom, the data points I wanted to, I wanted to be most true and ignoring the things that would tell me to sell. And another big problem is I surrounded myself by Peloton bulls. And that's, that's the worst thing you can do because, you know, no one's challenging your viewpoints. And so I was, I was gravitating towards favorable 
data points. And I was, you know, just putting myself in these groups that are diehard Peloton bulls. And it, it just, it just shows that you always need to look at the other side. And I think the biggest mistake I made was, you know, getting rich and staying rich are two very different things, right? When you get rich, you're taking these huge risks. You know, you're, you're, you're going after stocks that not many people know. And, you know, there's, a, there's an element of luck there. And you need to realize there's an element of luck. And, you know, the way that got me rich is the same way that blew up my account. You know, when you get rich, that's when you need to start. That's when you need to start switching your skills to staying rich. And there takes, you know, you have to be paranoid. Um, Sequoia Capital has been in business for 40 years. And um, they asked, you know, how have you guys stayed in business so long? And they said, well, we're afraid of going out of business, right? So they, they carry that, that stay wealthy mindset. And that's something I didn't switch to. And you know what? And this is what I say to people. I say, thank God it was only a million and a half dollars that I lost when I learned this lesson, right? Because at some point, I'm going to get it back. And when I do, I'll keep it. So, so would it, did you basically lose the full amount just in that one Peloton trade then? Oh, man. I, I still right now to this day from that account have 70 in it. So, I mean, I didn't lose the full amount, but pretty darn close to the full amount. It's interesting because when you when did you start with the 20,000? That would have to be March, March so you, or April. I think March. So 20,000 to 70, you have still comfortably beaten the market in that time period. <sighs> yeah, there's there's another part of the story too, Sam. Okay. This one really sucks. But let's go down that road, shall we? So, you know, I got cocky, confident, I quit my job, which I'm still glad I quit my job because um, I later ended up getting a better job when I needed to go back to work. But when, you, when I quit my job, that freed up my, my 401k. And I did some very degenerative ape-like things with my 401k um, with Peloton too. So, you know, I, I lost a considerable amount in my 401k as well. Um, but I, I still do have other accounts that, you know, like I said, when you graduate college, you just want to, you want to collect your powder. And um, I threw a lot of money in, in betterment too. So I still do have cash on, on the sidelines and uh, you know, I'm just waiting for that next opportunity because to be a good successful trader, you know, it's different than long-term investing. You got to know when to sit on your hands, which is the hardest part, but then you also have to know the time to pour on the risk. So when you did the big Peloton trade, where you said there was, I don't know, you could have, you could find 20 things, 20 reasons to tell, 20 reasons to hold, 20 reasons to buy. In hindsight, what do you think were the reasons you should have sold that you were possibly aware of, but didn't give enough weight to? So when you listen to a CEO, you always got to read between the lines, right? Because they're trying to, they're basically salespeople, right? They're trying to sell you on the company. And when John Foley said he, um, you know, he was cutting the price of the bike by $500, when he said that, um, it was an offensive move. And he said, you know, we're playing, we're playing chess and our competition is playing checkers. You know, there is some like insecurity vibe I got from that message. You know, it's kind of like the DraftKings CEO that said, you know, if you sell DraftKings, it's going to be the 
biggest mistake of your life after he just sold I mean, how many millions of DraftKings stock. Um, so when I heard John Foley said that, I was like, that was a red flag that got me thinking. And then I looked at the Google trends and the Google trends were going downwards. So I said, okay, he cut the price of the bike by $500 and the Google trends are still going down, right? That's an awful sign, right? It's bad enough that, you know, the Google trends are going down, but now they're doing it at a point where they're not even profitable on that hardware because before they were making close to 50% margins on their hardware, right? Now their bike was a lost leader essentially. And that's magnified by the missteps they've had with the, you know, the Peloton tread. And you saw how John Foley just handled that so poorly. I mean, there's just, I mean, there's, there's red flag after red flag. And, you know, I actually called one of the delivery guys and I called Chris Camilla after this and he, he bought a bunch of Peloton puts and I didn't stupidly, but the, the delivery guy said, Hey man, we have two people that um, we laid off because, you know, we're not delivering stuff. And then my bias said, okay, well, it's because everyone just spent all this money on household assets, you know, like gym equipment. They want to spend their money on going out to bars and restaurants and they want to spend money on services and fitness bikes, fitness treadmills, they're a cyclical business and they're, they're primarily purchased, you know, in December through February, right? November through February, that time frame. So I, Every little data point that I looked at that was like a red flag, I just said, no, no, there, there's a reason, right? There's a reason why this, this is. But I was just making excuses for the poor data. And, um, and I, I'm, I'm the kind of investor that doesn't really care about other people's opinion. Like for Rocket, when people said that was a stupid trade idea, I just deleted my Discord and I didn't want to talk to anyone about it because I didn't want them to get inside my head about my trade, right? I didn't want them to shake my conviction. With Peloton, I was actually going out and I was searching for the other bulls and like, you know, trying to be reassured by their thoughts, right? And like, now I know when I'm doing something like that, you, you, you know, it's something's not adding up. Something's not right. Something deep down in your gut is telling you, maybe you shouldn't be holding this much in a position. The fact that I needed to reach out to people, the guy that ignores other people's advice is now reaching out to people for reassurance. You know, that was a red flag. Another one, I think this is, you know, this is probably the most true, um, you know, idiom that I hear investing is, you know, never hold a position size that um, takes away from your sleep at night. And that started happening, right? So I had all these red flags and, you know, it, it actually gives me confidence, Sam, because now I know when I see these red flags, I, tr I won't duplicate it. And you can read about people blowing up their accounts, mistakes they've made, but some things you just got to experience firsthand. And like I said, the, the mindset I'm having is, thank God I blew up my account when it was only 1.5 million. And now it's time for me to learn from my mistakes and try to get it back. So what do you think about Peloton as a company now that John Foley's gone as CEO? Has that changed your view at all? Or? I, I like the new CEO. John, he's the total opposite of John Foley, right? So John Foley says, you know, hey guys, we are family. You know, I'm, I always love you guys. The new CEO took over and he said, hey, I just want everyone to know that this is not a family. Like we are like a football team. And if I put you in the game and you drop the ball, then you're going on the bench, right? You're not going to be out of this team any longer because we are playing to win. 
right? So I like that mindset. Um, you know, he's trying this rental idea and they asked, you know, instead of you know, buying a Peloton for the $1,500, $1,600, they're dropping it off to people's houses and they're just paying $90 a month to rent it. And when they asked McCarthy, why are you doing this? He said, I'm not going to wait for the marketplace to come to me and tell me what they want. I'm going to go out there. And I'm going to find out what they want. So I like what he's doing. I like his mindset. I like his cost cutting. And I like his background in subscription businesses because he was at Netflix and Spotify. Um, so I do like all that. But at the end of the day, the most important thing that you need to look at is the data. And the customer data is not improving. And until it improves, I won't get, be getting back in unless, you know, we find $20 support line, then it's like, I, I can't help myself. I'll get in big. But right here, mm, we'll see. We'll see. I think I, I, it's definitely not a stock to go all in on. I do think it will. I think at like $20, though, it is an asymmetric bet because right now, how many people are talking about Peloton? How many people are talking it up? You know, the marketplace is all about participation. And if Peloton does turn it around, I mean, buyers are going to be coming in. I mean, how many people are left to sell at this point? Um, so I think it's one to watch, but I think we need to see the customer data improve first. So how have you changed your strategy as a result of losing such a large proportion of your net worth? I know you talked about if you're seeing those, those bear indicators and you know, the warning signs, you'd know to take more, well, to follow that rather than what other people are saying. But is there anything else? Yeah, don't, don't confuse your short-term trades for long-term investments, right? And, and that's something that I was good at starting, right? Like I was, I was good at, you know, taking it from my Betterment account and putting it on these trades that I thought were asymmetric and then putting it back in my Betterment account so I wasn't trading just to trade. I was, I was good at that. But once you make so much money, you know, you make 660 grand in one day, you think you're invincible, right? And then you start saying, oh, I don't need to go back to that old strategy. I just made 660K. The moment you think you're smarter than the market is the moment you need to, I don't know, you need to pay off your house, put all your money in gold and put the rest in your checking account, right? Because you cannot outsmart the market. And that's where I was, you know, and again, like I learned a lot of stuff you need to experience firsthand. There's a saying that I, that I love. I don't know if you've heard it, but there's, it goes, there's old pilots and there's bold pilots, but there's no such thing as old and bold pilots. And you can replace the word pilot with investor, right? There's, there's old investors and there's bold investors, but there's no such thing as an old and bold investor because at some point you're going to blow up, right? And I've always said that in my head. I knew it and boom, I had to live it to learn it. Um, so, you know, some things you just got to experience in life, you know, and you, you just can't read it in a book. Let's see what other things, I, I would say take accountability for your bad trades um, you, you, shouldn't be gov you shouldn't be blaming the president or some guy that told you um, a stock tip or the market or the Fed chair. You shouldn't be blaming those people. They didn't put a gun to your head and told you to tell you to buy these stocks. You could be in cash if you wanted to. Um, and, and I realized taking accountability for your bad trades makes you, gives you more control as an investor. And I realized that because at some point I was blaming Foley for lying and stuff. But at the end of the day, it was all on me. It was all on my shoulders. And if you're busy blaming other people, 
then you're never going to look inside and see the mistakes that you made and you're never going to improve as a trader. Um, so I, I think taking accountability is a, is a huge takeaway from this too. So you've already, again, you've already touched on this a bit, but you've, you said um, that you trade concentrated and levered. You're 100% cash right now because it just takes one trade and one opportunity to generate great wealth and you're waiting for that opportunity. Could you just talk a bit more about this? And then also, what's the longest amount of time you've actually sat in cash? All right, so let's, when people say cash is the worst investment and then they pull up a chart of the S&P and they say, well, look what would happen if you stayed cash and the chart goes all the way up, right? But let's go look at Upstart. Let's go look at Peloton. Let's go look at Rocket. It's not straight up. There's always opportunity and volatility and we're in a very volatile market. And you know, I think if you're trading and you're not getting any wins, let's just say you're staying flat, that is far worse than not trading at all and staying cash. Because like I said, you're expending your mental capital. And the more mental capital you spend, you know, the, the worse you're going to be when a huge opportunity comes because you're so focused and lost and, and lost in the sauce on these other trades that you're going to miss it. Um, so I think staying cash is good for that. You know, there was a point where I had 60K in my checking account for two years. And people probably think that's crazy, right? And, and hell, people thought I was crazy when I was thinking about paying off my house in 2021. That would have been a really smart move, it turns out, right? And staying cash is a smart, was a smart move for me because it gave me the conviction to take those big risks with my 20K, knowing I had a lot of cash in my bank account, right? It, it may not... It may not make sense, like, I don't know, it, it, it might not make sense to others, but it doesn't need to make sense to others as long as it makes sense to you because it's your money, it's your risk. And, you, and if you're going to be taking risk, you need to be in a place of comfort. Yeah, I can't remember who said it, but I was, I was listening to a podcast recently. I think they're talking about Buffett and Munger, and they, they said at, at one point the, the advice they'd give everyone that's made a bit of money is just pay off your mortgage because although it's not going to be a very good investment in terms of what you could have got if you'd invested it in the market, you'll just sleep so much better at night knowing that you completely own the house over your head. Could you talk to us a bit about how you do use options? Because we've never covered this on the show. Um, so my basic, and it's a very basic understanding, is a, is a call option is you get the right to buy it at a certain price and a put option is you get the right to sell it. That's, yeah, that's basically not the full extent of my knowledge. I think breaking down options in real estate, like using real estate as an example is really effective because we can all think in terms of real estate very easily. Right. And um, I think I think was I said his name so many times, but I think it was Camilla that gave us an analogy to me. Let's say let's say you are at the supermarket and there's a mayor and the developer, a business developer there. And you overhear that they're going to build a stadium at a certain part of town, a baseball stadium, right? And you know this, right? You know they're going to build a base, baseball stadium and typically houses by baseball stadiums go up in value, right? And there's a neighborhood with 20 houses on a little hill, you know, just past left field. And so what you could do, those houses, let's say those houses are worth $50,000 and you have $50,000 to your name. So what you could do with your $50,000 is you could go and you could buy a house for $50,000. The baseball stadium's announced, boom, that house goes from $50,000 value to $100,000 value. Therefore, 
you profited $50,000. That's you know, the analogy for buying stock. Now for buying options, let's say you still only have $50,000, but you go to the, one of the homeowners and you say, how about I pay you 50,000 or I pay you $5,000 for the option to buy your house for $50,000, right? So you, you give them $5,000 for the option to buy for $50,000 and you have this for six months. You can buy at any time you can buy that house at $50,000 for the next six months. And you do that to 10 other homeowners, right? So you use your $50,000 to have that option to buy at 50,000 and all the houses are go up to 100,000, you already have the option to buy 10 houses at 50,000. So instead of making 50,000 on that trade, you levered using options and you're able to make $450,000 on that trade on buying those houses. So you've essentially nine to 10 X your money. Does that make sense? Yeah, it Might does. Have to edit that one. It's, no, that, that makes sense. Yeah, it's probably worth covering on the flip side, but in the stock analogy, if the stadium deal falls through for whatever reason, you are still left with the house. Whereas in the option analogy, you've just got 10 worthless options. Exactly. You so put $5,000 that expire worthless. Exactly. So how does that translate to stocks then? Because obviously six months is a very, very short time frame. So you, you could be right on a stock, but wrong on the time frame. Yeah. So what I typically do is I try to buy at the money options. Um, because, you know, Wall Street bets have, have kind of started a revolution for options buying we explain know, every day. What at the money is. So at the money is you write a contract to buy that stock at a certain price. So if you're if the stock is trading at twenty dollars, then if you're buying twenty dollar calls, then that's at the money right now. If the stock is twenty dollars and you're buying thirty dollar calls, then you're buying out the money call. Um, so I typically try to buy at the money because out the money calls, you can make a lot more, but they are more risky. And a lot of traders are adopting this risky mindset. So a lot of people are buying these out the money calls. Therefore, the premium is a lot higher today than it was when I started trading options in 2018. Because you just have more supply and demand. You just have more people buying out the money calls. And um, at, at the money calls, you know, it's, you can, you don't blow up your account as fast, right? You can sleep a little better and you can still also leverage, um, use leverage to, to, to grow your account. Does that answer your question? Uh, yes, thank you. How much leverage, what's the highest amount of leverage you would use? Say, say for example, you, you saw the best opportunity in the world. What is the maximum amount of leverage you'd be willing to go to? Man, you know, okay, so here's a saying, and like I said, it's a platitude, right? So like, you know, it, you have to experience it, but one thing I learned from blowing up my account is that no gains are worth all the money you own. There's no gain in the world that's worth blowing up your account. And, and that's why when I use leverage, I also keep a lot of money in my checking and other accounts so I can live, you know, sleep peacefully at night when I'm using that. Um, I'd say if for leverage on options, the most I would use is probably 20% of my net worth. And that's if all the stars are aligning. And uh, you got to remember, when you're going to make a 10-bagger, usually you're not going to be feeling, I mean, if you, if you think it's a really good idea to buy a stock, it feels right because it's green, everyone's talking about it. It's probably not, the, probably not the best time to buy a stock. But when everyone hates it, 
and um, you're the only one on that side that says it's a buy. Yeah, you know, two months later you say, why didn't I put more money in it? But you know, it doesn't it doesn't always feel right when you're taking a big risk because you're being a contrarian. Everyone says, don't do it. Um, so you know, I always say, oh man, I should have put more money in Peloton calls or I shouldn't have sold half my rocket calls the day before the squeeze. But at the end of the day, like I, I was having respect for luck because I did get lucky on Peloton. I did get lucky on rocket. And, um, you know, so you, you, you can't just put all your eggs in one basket. And I learned that through, through training levered training options. And, um, it was an expensive lesson. You know, and I, I say, I tell my friends jokingly that I paid for my Wall Street tuition uh, blowing up my account. And uh, hopefully, hopefully that, uh, that education will serve me well in the future. What are the best books you've read on investing and how much do you read generally? Honestly, I, I, would, I would have to say I've, I've started loving Audible, right? Because like I'm driving, driving, you know, to the grocery store or cleaning the dishes, doing laundry. It gives you an opportunity to learn while you're doing other tasks. And so I've been using that a lot more than I have been reading. I still do like reading, but the books probably, I would say the best book I've read so far was The Psychology of Money. And I know that was pretty recent. Um, and when I read that book, I said, why am I so levered? You know, this, this book, I mean, he talks so, he, he talks about luck risk and, you know, getting wealthy versus staying wealthy. And it all made sense. And, you know, that was a lesson right there. When an idea hits, you got to strike while the iron's hot because, you know, I, I, days went by and, you know, my motivation to sell waned. Um, you know, if I could go back in time, what I should have done is just started reading that book over again, then read it again, then read it again, then read it again until I actually sold. But I really like that book. Um, I really like the Market Wizards books. Um, the new one is The Unknown Market Wizards. Have you ever heard of that? I've heard of the series. I've never read any of them. Oh, you'd, you'd like it, man. So there's a lot of Jason Shapiro, um, Chris Camillo, Richard Bryan. Um, they all give detailed, <laughs> detailed descriptions how they've blown up their account and then grew their account again only to blow it up again, right? So it, kinda, it kind of gave me some sense of peace that this happens to a lot of people. And, and you know, they all say the one thing that they have in common is resiliency, not giving up. Um, when I blew up my account, a book that was really good for me um, that I, I read and listened to was Unbroken, which is a World War II story about an Olympian um, pilot that gets shot down and he's in a Japanese concentration camp for you know a couple of years. It's like, okay, you just lost all your money, but you're not getting tortured to death in a concentration camp. Um, so I think, I think too, there's a lot of good books outside of investing that you can learn. Um, I think Atomic Habits was a great book. The Compound Effect. I really, this is not an investing book, but I really liked um, Sapiens too. Um, and, and one I just, just finished was actually Matthew McConaughey book. And I, I liked it surprisingly. Um, it's called Green Lights. And it just shows you when you make a mistake or something goes wrong in your life, when you look back, it could actually be a positive. You know, it just changed your direction to go down the path that you should have been going down. So I, I really enjoyed that. And I think, I think um, you can learn so much from books. I, I love Jim Rohn and I, I've read all his books. And he says, if anyone wants, if anyone tells you that they want to be a leader, 
the first thing you do is ask them to take you to their library and see what books they're, books they're reading. Um, because there's just a wealth of knowledge that you can get. And I think with the technology of Audible, there's no excuse not to listen or read and learn. What are the best, uh, the best resources that you use for investing? And these can be free or paid. I really like, like I said, I really like Reddit, YouTube, you know, Discord, finding new tickers to study, Yahoo, Google Finance, Google Trends, and just picking up the phone. Because if you're really going to go deep into a company, pick up the phone, dial, dial number and, and see how their business is actually going. And I think I didn't tell you this at the beginning, but that was one of the reasons why I took such a leap of faith on Peloton and went in because I called a delivery guy and he said, dude, it's like Christmas times two every day. And he said this in March or in April uh, rather. And I was just like, man, I got a hold. So I think doing your own investigative research, I think is very important because you're doing research that hasn't been done or hasn't been reported. So it's, it's very fresh. You know, you can beat the herd. So I, I would really recommend people contacting businesses, contact, going on LinkedIn, see who works there, see whatever open source um, information you can get that's, you know, obviously legal, um, not going to violate SEC. You talk a bit about Discord and what, what you use that for and what that's like, because I've never really, I've used Discord once. I didn't, I didn't really get it, to be honest. Yeah, I recommend all your listeners to go to Dumb Money Discord. And that's Chris Camillo's Discord. You know, they they're they're uncovering new stocks every day. And they put, you know, like different trades, like, okay, we're talking insurance, we're talking automotive, we're talking boomer stocks, we're talking growth stocks. You know, you, you got all these people that will give you tips. And you need to be wary on stock tips, never trade on stock tips. But you know, you get that ticker in your head and you're like, okay, let me do my due diligence, let me go over the fundamentals, let me look at the tape. You know, let me see what theories there are out there. Let me see if this is a secular business that has a huge growth path moving forward. If they have a good story, let me learn about their CEO. You know, that's stuff that you have to do because ultimately, if you want to be an accountable trader, you have to make your own decision. But I think Discord's really good for kind of surfacing those tickers that maybe you won't see every day. So is it like just a group chat, basically? Yeah, exactly. Okay. It's like uh, a, a more privatized chat room, you know? Right. So you've already mentioned a few names, but who do you look up to as an investor? Yeah, I would I definitely say Chris Camillo. You know, he has a very high risk tolerance like me. And I respect how he does his DD. You know, he'll just close himself off in a room and study a stock for 12 hours. And that's something, you know, that's a skill that I learned I have. Or if, if I really find interest in something, that you know, I can block out the world and study it. Um, so you know, I, I really, I really um, appreciate him. And you know, and, and probably the biggest thing is the guy has donated millions of dollars to pediatric research. So I, I mean, I think the world of that guy. I like Dave Lee investing. Um, I know he's a huge Tesla bull, but you know, I look up to him. You know, when this whole Afghanistan, the refugees. Um, coming over to America, you know, he stopped trading and he went on and he reached out to, to Afghanis and help and he raised a bunch of money. And, you know, I just have respect, you know, you, you look in the community and people, people make investors, retail, you know, retail investors, and people think they're scums, they're just in it for money. But 
honestly, like blowing up my account. I've had so many people reach out to me. So many people check on how I'm doing people, you know, a few people that were even from the market wizards books heard my story, reached out to me. And the first thing they say is be gentle on yourself, right? Because if, if you want to recover and you want to make it back, you have to remain optimistic and you have to learn from your mistakes. And another one I would have to say is meet Kevin. Have you watched any of his videos? I've never heard of meet Kevin. Oh man, you gotta watch meet Kevin. Meet Kevin is he'll, he'll do two hours of videos every single day while doing, you know, private courses, but he comes from a humble beginning. You know, he worked at Mrs. Fields cookie when he graduated high school and now he's worth $30 million. He kind of came from humble beginnings and he is just a workhorse. He does DD and he really, he really is getting, starting to get into more macro, you know, like looking at the rates, you know, what a lot of, um, you know, having like breaking down Kathy Woods videos or what Jerome Powell is saying. Um, so I think he's, I think he's really good. And I recommend your followers definitely to check out me, Kevin. You come across the, I can't remember which, but there's something you said that made me think of it. Have you come across the Jim Rohn quote where it's becoming a millionaire, not for the money, but for the person you'll become? Oh yeah. How do you think you've changed as a result of making all that money? So he, you know, Jim Rohn is a, uh, is a guy that has blown up his account has been you know lied to by investors lost a bunch of money and you know when he loses his money or when he lost his money he's, he's dead now when he lost his money he said you know what i knew the recipe to make the money and all i did is rinse and repeat right and um you know he he, he said this and i can relate to it you know you learn a lot more you learn a lot more from losing money than you do making money and i think bill gates says it you know success is an awful teacher you know, you know, when you fail, that's when you really learn. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And yeah, Jim Rohn, Jim Rohn is kind of the guy that got me into reading too. You know, he's the, he's the guy that preaches you need to read. I, I picked up a book, Richest Man of Babylon, never would have heard of it um, unless I listened to him. It's a very, you know, very he says things. Yeah, very straightforward. And, you know, one quote that really stuck out to me that he says is, if you want to be successful, you need to work harder on yourself than you do on your job. And he says, you know, working on your job can make you a living, but working on yourself can make you a fortune. And like I said, you know, I, I, I definitely noticed the self-improvement of losing this money and, and keeping my cool, going back to work, putting my head down and, and trying to repeat the wealth that I created and next time maintain it. You've hit on something as well with success being the worst teacher. Because um, I think when I first started investing, my my first year was fantastic. And my next few sort of investments after that, they were very, very good. So after I'd done like three or four investments, I was I was at a point mentally where I thought everything I touched would turn to gold. And one thing I was very, very excited for was this, this was back in like 2017, I think, but the snap chat ipo um i was keen on that because i listened to a lot of gary v at the time and he was talking about what made snap unique as a platform and why it was so good so i i i was looking at it from more than the numbers because the numbers were horrendous at that point so on the day of the ipo i put 40 percent of my portfolio into snap and that was just an awful awful decision and it wasn't so much that the way i thought about the company was wrong because it's now a, if i'd held it i would have beat the market it wasn't that what I thought was wrong. It was more that because I backed myself that much 
I didn't really size up the risk properly because it was a very, very risky stock. So I, with 40% in it dropped, I mean, at one point I was down over 80% on it and that's without any leverage, um, which is quite an achievement. So it, I think I bought in at about $27 and then it went all the way down to $4. And then I think I sold a chunk at 15, I sold a chunk at 20 and then I sold a chunk at 25. So by the time it got back to where it was, I was all out, but I'd only lost sort of 30 or 40% of that 40%. And if I hadn't have had those, you know, those investments earlier on where I thought it was so good, I think I would have been able to hold on to that. Because the reason that I sold it is because I'd been down over 80% of it. It was at that point when I realized, well, actually, I, I put too much money into this. I'm not comfortable with the amount of loss. So then once it started coming back up, it was like, I, I do need to just take the money just so I can invest it in something else. Because I just shouldn't, I, I just massively over allocated. And it was because I'd done so well initially. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people can relate to that. And you need, to, you need to know your risk tolerance as an investor. If, if you can't stomach that type of volatility, then index funds or buy and hold bigger companies, you know, what, what works for you won't work for anyone else. And you know, what's funny is, I, I remember, I think it was what, two, was it 2018 when it fell to $4? It was about then, yeah. I remember texting my buddy and thinking like, wow, this is time to buy. And he said, no, dude, that's trash company. Everyone hates it. And right there's an example of going against the herd, right? It turns out that would have been an incredible opportunity to buy. And the, the thing about traders are we trade for the present. You know, we don't think about the future. We think about, okay, what's going on right now? And, um, you know, it turns out like if, when, you remember when oil people had, to, people were getting paid to take barrels of oil? Yeah, the negative oil. Point, yeah, I mean, we thought it would have been ludicrous to buy oil then. It would have been absolutely crazy. Those people are up 100% right now. You know, obviously there's, there's luck involved in that because of what's going on with Russia. But at the end of the day, it, it all boils down to participation. If everybody's in one stock, like, you know, Snapchat at IPO, everyone was pumping it up. If everybody's in one stock, then who's left to buy when, when people want to sell? So what Twitter accounts would you recommend following the most? Honestly, dude, tell you the truth, Sam, I, I, I don't like Twitter for, for investments that much. I, yeah, I just, it does, doesn't do it to me. I'm, I'm on Twitter all the time, but like, I, I just, I don't like following trades that people, I don't like other people influencing my ideas. And on Twitter, if they're going to influence my ideas, I want more than just a tweet. I want a 30-page DD that you're going to get on Reddit. And I don't know if that's something you want to use. Um, no, no that's, that's, that's a good answer. I'll keep that in. The problem is of Twitter, anyone that does a 30-page DD, it's hidden behind a Substack paywall, isn't it? Yeah. It's in, in, at the end of the day, like you believe something so much more if you found that information. And it can get you started down the path. But at the end of the day, there's, if you're going to make a trade, you need to know a lot more than whatever the character limit is, 160 characters. I'd say one account that I do like, and it's probably because he doesn't say buy this stock or sell this stock, is Danny Baldwin, if you're familiar with him. I've not heard of him, no. I think it's Baldwin. Um, but, you know, he just talks about like, hey, guys, simple, like very breaks it down very simple. You want you can't get rich renting your time out, right? You just can't get rich working a job. 
you need to have you need to have assets that earn for you while you're sleeping. Um, and what he says is, you know, he preaches frugality. He says he he and his wife only have one car. I think he's up to three million. He's around twenty nine. They only have one car. They keep their expenses down, and he's grateful for that money. And all they do now is travel, right? With their expenses down, his assets that are returning. I think he's a seller on Amazon too. But you know, he all he does is travel and have these awesome experiences. Meanwhile, everyone's you know looking at their their phone to see if their stock has gone up a quarter percent stressed out and he's over there enjoying life. And if I could go back in time, that's one thing I wish I would have done is just cashed out and traveled with my wife for a year. So I, I do like reading his stuff. It's a reminder that money is just a tool to give you freedom. And if you use money to spend on flashy things, all you're doing, that money is worthless because all you're doing is becoming a slave to it because you're going to need as your expenses grow, as your account grows, then, I mean, you just keep moving the goalposts back and you're not going to have freedom. Um, and, you know, it's funny, it's like household income has skyrocketed over the past 70 years. You know, you look at 1950, it's, it's gone up exponentially. And then you look and the depression rates also have gone up. And I've traveled to third world countries and people that don't have a pot to piss in tend to be happier than most Americans, right? And it's because people that make money, they spend a bunch of money. So they become a slave to it when really what makes us happy is having control over our time. And I think, yeah, you got to make money, but you also have to live a life of frugality. So you can control time. You don't constantly need to have those $600,000 days, which I'll probably never have again, but you don't, you know, you don't need to rely on those big ones. So what do you know now that you wish you when you started investing and what advice would you give yourself when you were just starting out? I'd probably say nothing is as good as it seems and nothing is as bad as it seems. You know, you made a bunch of money. Great. But, you know, it's just money. Like, look at look at Will Smith. That guy has three hundred and fifty million dollars. Do You see him slap Chris Rock. He's not in a good headspace. I just watched Kanye West documentary. He was so happy when he was young, when he was starting out. And then he got all that money and that fame. And, you know, mental illness is, is obvious. So, I, you know, really the lesson I think I learned is try to stay balanced. You know, your wins are going to take you high and your losses are going to take you low. Try to, try to limit how high it takes you and how low it takes you. Try to stay even keeled. Because when you stay even keeled and you, you've maintained your mental capital, that's when you are in the best headspace to make a trade that might, might change your life. How have you evolved as an investor? Man, I don't know. I guess we'll, I guess we'll have to wait to find out. But I'd, I'd say as an investor, I've learned to think more independently. You know, and I hate to go back to politics, but you know, most political people just side with their party blindly. They don't take the time to learn about the problem or the implications of a proposed policy. And if you do that in investing, you will just get wrecked. If you're biased like I was on Peloton, you'll get ruined. So now, you know, I know when I make that money again, I, I have to I I have to operate much differently. Right. I found out what happens when you keep pushing the goalposts back. And when you say, I just need a hundred grand. Okay. I just need a million. You know, when you keep pushing those goalposts back, 
then it's never going to be enough. And at some point, your greed is going to take over and you're going to blow up your account. I think you've probably already covered these, but just in case anymore, what are the biggest mistakes you've made in investing? I think in investing, a narrative is very powerful. You know, how good a story is. That's why I recently got in Twitter, just because I know the story of Elon, the product guy, you know, Steve Jobs Jr. taking this company. The narrative is great. And you can make money off narratives, but make sure you trade narratives. Don't just invest long-term on narratives and never let a narrative trump data. Data is king. And I think a good book on that illustrates this is, have you ever read the book or heard of the book Freakonomics? Yes, very good. You know, like you, you look like sumo wrestlers, right? Sumo wrestlers are, you know, a very honorable, it's a very honorable tradition, right? Like there's no cheating involved. And they looked and they saw in Freakonomics that a sumo wrestler that has eight wins under his belt, under his belt, and, you know, he can afford, because you need eight wins to get into the, the playoffs or whatever the next round is. Once they have eight wins, like the chance of them losing their next match goes up exponentially because they don't want to waste their stamina and they can take a fall to get paid. You know, so like a lot of invest, you know, not investing um, bookies, use sumo wrestlers like, hey, you know, you already, you already got your eight wins. You're already going to the next round. Take a fall. We'll pay you X amount. And uh, no one would have known that unless they looked at the data, right? The, the narrative that, you know, this is an honorable sport of tradition and everything, you know, that's a great narrative. Don't get me wrong. But the data showed that these guys were taking falls. And I think two people try to come forward about this in Japan and they were both murdered. So, you know, that's a great, Freakonomics is a great example of a book that shows you that data is way more important than narrative. And that is probably one of the biggest lessons that I learned through making mistakes is always choose data over a narrative. What do you think of current valuations of companies in the US? I mean, it's tough, right? I think, you know, you talk about 2000, you look at those valuations, what were those companies really doing? You know, those tech companies. And I think Kathy Wood says this really great when she says they were just playing the seed back in, in 2000. And now those seeds have turned into big oak trees. So valuations are going to change. And, you know, I think it all goes back to participation, right? I mean, yeah, valuation could be high, but look at Tesla. Look at Amazon when it was 700. You just, you just go back to participation. The fact that when Amazon was at 700 and people kept on saying, well, the valuation is too high. The valuation is too high. Those people that were saying that didn't own the stock. So those are a potential buyer. So it all goes back to participation. And, you know, I, I mean, the valuations are honestly pretty high, but maybe, I don't know, maybe they keep going. Maybe they don't. I'm not sure. I think, I think macro is very, very hard to control because there's so many different outliers and they'll say, oh, the last time they raised rates, you know, this is what happened. But there's so many different things going on now that it's hard to, it's hard to really know. I, I think, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think valuations, I think valuations are just one component. They aren't the whole thing. So Does that make sense? At, yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Do you look at any markets besides the US for ideas? No, I, I actually don't. And I was, kind of curious on what you had to say about the differences because 
my opinion, like I said, I'm about participation in the markets. Um, I, I feel like there's a lot better arbitrage for UK, for these other markets, because everyone's so fixated on the US. So there could be an up and coming company that not a lot of people know about. And I think there's great opportunity in that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think what I normally say is I think in the UK, you know, if you look at the average cots, stock on the FTSE and compare it to the S&P, the S&P has got better companies. There's no doubt about that. But it's reflecting the valuations. And I think every now and then in the UK, you can you can find, say, a FTSE 350 listed company, which is the biggest 350 stocks listed in the London Stock Exchange. And you can find somewhere they are incredibly cheap, especially if you look at them compared to the US peers. So as an example, like even, even last week on the regular show, me and John looked at a stock called Keyword Studios. And what they do is there's a lot of elements of like creating a video game that you can outsource to them. It's obviously a good industry to be in right now. And they're growing, what did they, oh, I'm making up a number, but I, I want to say they grew about 40% last year or something. And if you look at the, the past five years, revenue and earnings are both up about 250% or something like that over the past five years. And the stock was only at a P of 29. And me and John, we were looking at it being like, well, 29s, you know, it's, it's not cheap, but I mean, what would that stock be at in the US? You wouldn't, especially for that stock with those kinds of results in that kind of industry with those kinds of tailwinds. I don't think you'd be looking at a P of 29 because I mean, you can get, you can get Coke and McCormick for over 30. So it's, I mean, you'd, you'd be lucky if you got it for 50 and even then when it was such a small market cap, I mean, you're probably going to be talking about the price of sales really because the earnings would probably be so, the P would probably be so high, it would be unusable. I, I think that's the difference that you, you're not, you can actually just buy a company and you can, you can just let the company do its thing and your growth in the valuation of your shares, it's probably going to move with the increase in the earnings of the company. You might get lucky and you might get, you know, an expansion of the multiple it trades at. But I think there's a lot of companies in the US where they're fantastic companies, but you look at them and you just think, well, how much does that thing need to grow just to justify its current valuation? Like they, the, the best example is something like Tesla, where you, you could believe everything Elon Musk says, I think. And if you look at, I don't know what, I don't follow it that regularly, but say it's got a market cap of a trillion dollars still at the minute. I mean, what how, what is that eventually going to earn? Say at some point it's going to trade, at, you know, at some point that multiple has to come down. So if it's going to come down to, like, say, a P of 10, which is, you know, what a lot of the traditional car makers are about, they're around that range. It needs to be making $100 billion of profit a year. When you look at the company and the industry it's in, it's nowhere near that. And I don't I don't think it could sell enough cars to get that. I know you then got the energy argument and all this, but I, the, the mm -hmm. point is even you could think Tesla's the best company in the world, but it's just so expensive that how much, how many of the future returns are already priced in. And I think in the UK, you don't need to worry about that as much. So that's probably how I'd answer it. Yeah. And you can, you can look at like Neo, right? I mean, their market cap is 46 billion mm. and you know, they're growing as fast as Tesla, but I think, I think it gives a good opportunity. Cause like, if you're a legacy company like Microsoft, who are you going to buy? Are you going to buy, um, you know, undervalued, company in the UK or one of these overvalued small caps in the US. So I, th I think there's opportunity there, but it's, you know, money is so cultural. Like you look at Japan, I, I mean, how long were they flat for and they're trading and you look at um, Australia, I think 
they were flat for 20 years after they lift sanctions, I think in the eighties, I mean, they hit a bubble so hard that it took 20 years to recover. So, I mean, it's at the end of the day, it has to do with culture and investor behavior. And that's why, you know, valuations you sometimes have to take with a grain of salt. Mm. Well, if you look at a graph of the FTSE 100, for example, I mean, since, since the late nineties, it's barely budged. I mean, it's, it's I, I don't think it's up more than like 20% from its peak in the dot-com. It's, it's really, it's the, the difference is with the FTSE, you do get large dividends. So you, the stocks barely move, but you're probably at about 4% of dividends a year. So it's not as bad as it looks, but it has been around the current valuation levels for a long, long time. But that's if you were to buy the, you know, the entire market. And I think the FTSE's not got particularly good stocks in it. Um, whereas it, it does have a few gems in there, but you would be buying a lot of old economy stocks. Um, yeah. So we've, we've covered this a bit already, but how, how do you think about allocation and position sizing? Man, I am, for better or for worse, I'm either all in or I'm not. And I, like I said, I treat my betterment or the, the spy, I kind of treat that as a checking account where, you know, if I'm not, I don't want to waste my mental capital. There's nothing out there to buy. I will just put it, I'll just put it in betterment or spy, let it grow, let it do whatever the market's doing. And then if I see an opportunity, I really want to obsess over it. I really want to dive deep and, um, you know, I'll put in 50% for my first trade. And, um, you know, if, if the data continues to be, to look what's trending in a favorable way, then I'll, 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 I'll put the uh, remaining 50% in. How much time a month do you spend on investing in your portfolio? So this is what's bad, man. Like, I would say I used to spend way more time doing actual research. Probably I would say during COVID at least, at least 30 hours a week, but I'm not really doing that much DD right now, just because like I said, you know, I kind of, I kind of knew recover from this mentally. You know, I did buy some Twitter um, after the Elon Musk announcement, but you know, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to kind of recover since that huge loss. And so a lot of my focus, and this is awful, I don't know if you have this problem, but checking stocks and like that does no good for you as a trader. I mean, every time you check a stock price, your body tenses up. I can't remember the trader's name. He was on uh, the, the um, Alpha Mind podcast. I, that's a UK podcast. You should really check out if you haven't. Um, but he recently had a heart attack and he said, you know, he could feel his body every time he checked the ticker tense up, you know, and you don't realize it, but like after years and years of doing that, it puts a lot of stress on you and you're not doing anything that will benefit you as a trader. You're not finding any in new information. You're not looking at fundamentals. You're not looking at Google trends. You're just looking at the stock and it kind of makes you powerless. And I've noticed, you know, that's what I was doing with Peloton. I wasn't doing the DD. I was looking at the stock. Um, so that's something I'm trying to get away from is just checking my, you know, avoid checking my account and do more research. Um, right now, I'd say I'm probably around, you know, 10 hours a week. What are your thoughts on Bitcoin as an investment? <sighs> have, have you ever uh, heard of the book Sapiens? Yeah, yeah, I've read it. Yeah. Have you read the sequel, Homo Deus? No, my, my dad is sending me a copy, though. I want to check that out. Did you I, like I that actually better? thought it was better than Sapiens. I preferred it. Really? Yeah, yeah, I'll check. I'll have to check it out. I thought that book was was great. So yeah, definitely check out the other one. But you know how he talks about imagined realities and how like 
you can't have a network of people outside of 50. You know, the human brain can't process that like over 50 yeah. or 100 people. And so imagined realities was really, I mean, it's, you know, a, a reality is a tree, a river, you know, a hill, mountains. Imagined realities was like Christianity or money. And it allowed, you know, these only 100 people that could connect. Well, it brought together millions of people to connect because of that imagined reality, that faith. And we see the same now in GameStop. GameStop has become an imagined reality where you're fighting, you know, the institutions. And imagined realities can be a lot more powerful than reality. And I think with everything that's going on with inflation and not being able to trust the government, I mean, you have all this misinformation, disinformation coming out from Russia right now and not being able to trust the, the government that, you know, China wants to start settling, you know, we, we all settle in the dollar, but, you know, who knows, maybe we'll start settling the yen. And so I, I think it gives a lot of credence to Bitcoin. And, um, you know, I, I don't own any and I follow Peter Lynch's kind of methodology. If it doesn't make sense to you, then, then, then don't buy it. And I don't. But knowing how powerful imagined realities can be and how powerful this narrative is, I think it does have some credibility. And it's, it's not like Peloton where you can see, okay, how many people are using their Peloton per day, right? Like you don't have that data to kind of change your opinion. You know what I'm saying? Like there, there isn't no, there isn't earnings for Bitcoin, right? You just have that narrative. So there's really, when I say data trumps narrative, like what data do we really have on Bitcoin? That would trump their narrative. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, I think there is data you could look at, though. I think you could. I mean, even just in terms of the wallets, the amount of people have been holding for over a year. You know, the market cap. If you compare that to say the market cap of gold, there's. I think there is definitely data you could get from it. But yeah, I agree. You're definitely not going to get quarterly earnings reports from it. Mm -hmm. And you're certainly never going to get any cash out of it. No. Right. So that brings us to the end of our questions so firstly thank you very much for coming on the show if there's anything else you'd like to add then now's the time to add it or equally if you just want to tell people where they can go and find you if they want to learn a bit more about you that's fine as well yeah honestly the, the one takeaway is you know if if you think that you outsmart you're smarter than the market you should probably stop you should probably put it in an index and, and relax and if you do blow up your account, the worst thing that you can do is say, I'm done. I'm not going to do this again, you know, because it's countless traders that say, okay, let me figure this out. And if you have that in your gut, if you have those chops, then don't quit. If it's something that's going to destroy you mentally, then maybe do index funds. Um, but for me, I know, you know, I, I feel, I feel like my story is just beginning. Um, so if, you know, anyone has blown up their account, I know it's, there might be a lot more blown up accounts coming this way. You can find me on Twitter. You can message me. Um, it's at wildbill32 on Twitter. And if you are at the peak and you have a lot of money right now and you've had a lot of luck, um, that's when you want to start surrounding yourself by people that are good at keeping money. That's when you want to start surrounding yourself with the people that went through the 2000 bubble and you want to, you want to get their take get my take, get people's take that have blown up their accounts before and be thankful for what you made. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show and uh, hopefully we'll have you back on in a couple of years when you've got your million dollars back. <laughs>
Hey, man, I appreciate it. Thank you for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.